You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Brian. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Another day to miss to kick off the month of September. Investors on edge ahead of the big jobs report on Friday. Is tapering still on or not? We've got some strategies and names that are paid, are cheap, and are apparently Fed-proof. And if hiring is slowing, then why are so many big companies going on major hiring sprees from Walmart to Fidelity to Amazon? We tally up the thousands of new job openings nationwide. And Apple is hoping to be your one-stop medical and financial hub. Is TikTok killing Facebook and what Kathy Wood means by transparency? It's all ahead this hour, but we begin with today's market. Stop you here with the numbers. So, Kelly, I mean, investors and traders are maybe on edge, but they're not on edge by that much. The reason why I say that is because, yeah, the market's kind of in the green right now, but the Nasdaq Composite hit a record high today. Another record high, another day, another record high. The S&P 500, though, right near session highs. This is about the high of the day so far. At the lows of the day, we were up roughly two points, so call it relatively flat. Still, though, a third percent gain for the S&P, close to a record, a record for the Nasdaq and the Dow Industrial System, about flat on the day. It seems pretty good heading into a big jobs number. Now, one of the big themes that's been playing out over the course of the pandemic lows till now has been the reemergence of value-oriented companies, not necessarily large-cap tech. Well, that's kind of reversed itself over the course of the last three months. Look at this particular ETF. The Invesco QQQ Trust tracks the Nasdaq 100, the Spider S&P 500 ETF, and the Small Cap ETF. Small Cap's flat over the last three months. The S&P up a very respectable 8%, but it's mega and large cap technology and media companies that are really lapping the field right now over the last three months. That tells you a little bit of something about the overall market theme. Mega caps are back. We'll see if that trend continues. And then for the stock of the day, Check out the moves that we are seeing right now in the Chinese Internet stocks. Remember, Pinduoduo is up, up 9% roughly, Baidu up 6%, JD.com up 3%, and the Crane Shares China's Internet ETF ticker KWEB is up 5.5% right now. There seems to be at least some value buying, maybe some short covering, if you will, but it's a three-day winning streak for that ETF. And Kelly, remember, for context, between mid-February and mid-August, this ETF lost almost 60% of its value. It is up since then about 24%. It just goes to show you a lot of ground yet to make up, but still in the green today for Chinese internet. Back over to you. A notable bounce for a very tough sector, Dom. Thank you very much. Markets, like Dom said, are grinding higher even as the growth picture darkens somewhat. Tight supply chains, rising inflation, the Delta variant, and questions about the Fed's timeline are all weighing on investors' minds. Which stocks might be relatively impervious to these concerns? Joining me now is Alan Boomer. He is the CIO and founder of Momentum Advisors. He's looking at names that are cheap, have fallen out of favor, and can't be hurt by the Fed. Alan, it's great to have you back. Uh, first of all, tell me what you think markets are going to look like here you know, in the, in the kind of weeks and months ahead. What, Friday's going to be a big number with the jobs report. Absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me. And you summed up the, the thesis and what, what's going on right now. We, we've had a really heady market. This is a year where stocks have been on fire. We've had 31% of the days this year, the S&P has hit new highs. That, that's a really, really strong uh, market. And so it, it's created a, a tough time because when you're looking for value, when you're looking for stocks, there's so many stocks that are overvalued, so many stocks that, you know, you, you'd really want to buy, but the price is just too high. So I think there's a couple of, of names out there that are overlooked that in the last three months have not done well. And those are the types of stocks that I'm looking for right now. FedEx, Activision Blizzard, Citizens Financial. So let's start with FedEx. You know, why is this stock out of favor? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, FedEx, for one, you've got to realize that um, it's all about earnings expectations moving forward, right? And they, they haven't been uh, incredibly rosy with regards to, you know, what they expect in the future. But at the same time, you know, when I think about all the bad things that could happen, you know, I think about COVID and everything else, you know, FedEx, I think, is kind of impervious to a lot of that, right? You have, um, you know, sitting at home ordering stuff, whether you're at the office or at home, like it's become convenient to order things online. And I think FedEx is being a part of that uh, distribution chain of yeah. getting things through e-commerce to your home. I just think it makes it, you know, again, a, a stock to buy. I mean, the stock's trading at 12 times next year's earnings. Um, it's a, a very cheap stock and I think it'll be around. I think it's a good play. And again, I you know should emphasize you're looking for dividends here as well um, for those kinds of strategies, which normally are attractive in a low-rate environment, which we're stuck in. But that's kind of why I want to ask about Citizens Financial, if there's any other uh, sort of financial, people who are invested in the financials and concerned about their performance. Can FedEx and Citizens do well together? You know, do Citizens need higher rates? Does it need a stronger reopening economy? The sort of factors that would make it things a, more of a headwind for FedEx. Well, what's different about Citizens right now, I know you, you asked about both, but you know, Citizens is down not because of, you know, all of the, hack, the, the macro headlines. Citizens is down because of their acquisition. Like anytime you see a big acquisition, typically the buyer goes down and, and the, you know, the, the, the company being acquired goes up. And they just announced uh, a big acquisition of investors. They, they bought uh, the East Coast branches of HSBC earlier this year. And so because of all that M&A, that, that's one of the main reasons why Citizens is down so much right now. But, you know, this is a bank that is trading at less than book value. Um, it's done pretty well this year, but again, in the last 90 days, the stock's down about 12%. I think I see a lot of value there. I think they're positioning themselves very well uh, just to, to compete in, in the East Coast, especially. You know, as I ask you about your final pick, Activision Blizzard, it is funny to hear, you know, a guy from Momentum Advisors talking so much about value stocks. It's almost as if your best advice is to be wary of the momentum plays here. We just thought it was a catchy name. Nothing to do with momentum <laughs> investing. <laughs> yeah, that has become a much bigger theme in the last few years. So finally, tell me about Activision Blizzard. Yeah, Activision, again, is one of those stocks that, you know, in the new post-COVID world where there's a hybrid of sort of pre-COVID life and post-COVID life, you know, folks are, you know, staying at home or they're, you know, they're still playing their games, you know. And I'm not a big gamer, but I've got gamers in the house and they've got some <laughs> Some titles that really, you know, again, are, are, you know, huge titles and, you know, they're, they're evolving and just, you know, I, I think they're positioning themselves really well, despite what's, what happens with the Delta variant. It's also a cheap stock, surprisingly, you know, Activision Blizzard trades at under the market multiple, the stock market trades right now at about a 22x next time's next year's earnings and Activision's at about 20 and a half times. So a little bit cheaper than the overall market. They've got a small dividend. But they've been growing their dividends by about 15% a year. And I think that's really key. As that company becomes more mature, they're going to pay out more in dividends. It's a great point. I'm glad you're emphasizing the factors you're looking for and some of the names we might not have been thinking about. Alan, great to have you. Thank you, sir. Great. Thanks for having me. Alan Boomer. Meantime, let's turn our attention to the latest down in New Orleans. Officials in the southeastern part of Louisiana are warning of a weeks-long recovery after Hurricane Ida left more than a million customers without power. Our Frank Holland is live in New Orleans with the latest on the race to restore power and to send out supplies, Frank. Hey there, Kelly. Well, right now we're here in East New Orleans, this neighborhood, one of the very few 
to have their power fully restored. If you listen, if I'm quiet, you can even hear the air conditioning is back on and take a look at this. This right here, this neighborhood, this house, this is literally a bright spot in a very dark time for the city of New Orleans. About 985,000 people in Southeast Louisiana are still without power and they're still without air conditioning as the temperatures are right around 90 degrees and the humidity is right around 90%. Energy, the local utility has said it could take weeks to get power fully restored to this area. CNBC got a drone view of one of the many transmission towers knocked down in that category four storm. Also, workers manually running transmission cables across highways and up poles. The labor-intensive work requiring those highways to be temporarily shut down. About 20,000 utility workers from 22 different states are expected here in the New Orleans area in the next coming days to assist in fully restoring power. And that effort, at least right now, at least here in East New Orleans, it appears to be working. However, we spoke to some other people in this neighborhood. They say they evacuated. They don't have any plans to come back until more stores are restocked and more gas stations have fuel. But obviously, the people that live here with air conditioning and their lights on, they're just overjoyed. When the electricity came back on, I was so excited. I actually screamed, wow, the lights are on. And he was like coming down the stairs so excited. We started texting all of our friends at 1.30, quarter to 2 in the morning. We didn't care. We have lights, exclamation mark, smiley faces. We're all going to be trying to get the same thing. So um, by me having, you know, children and, and I'm able to, to stay away and be evacuated, I think that's the best option for my family right now. But again, the vast majority of this area in the city of New Orleans still without power. And in addition, about a half a million people under a boil water advisory in this area due to power issues at water treatment plants. Earlier today, I spoke to the superintendent of New Orleans police. He says that the city is advising people who evacuated to stay away, at least for now, until things stabilize. So certainly a developing situation here in the New Orleans area. Kelly, Frank, we also to continue to hear and see uh, gasoline lines and shortages with a lot of gas stations in the area mm-hmm. still lacking supplies. What can you tell us? Well, Kelly, we've been to a number of gas stations. Those long lines that you've seen, we showed you some of them yesterday, they're still continuing. A lot of people are out here just trying to get enough gas to fill up their tank and get out of town or fill up their generator to stay just for a few more days until they can get things together to get out of town. But that situation does not appear to be resolving itself anytime soon. I actually spoke to Patrick Tahan from GasBuddy.com just uh, yesterday, actually, and he said the power issues in some cases are that uh, these gas stations, they don't have the power to run their pumps. That's why they don't have gas. And then in other cases, some of the down power lines and down trees are stopping gas delivery. He expects that situation to continue at least for the next few days. But the one possible bright spot here is that the Colonial Pipeline has resumed deliveries and other uh, methods of getting gas to this area. They are resuming. And there is a, a just uh, an effort in general to get more gas to this area because, of course, a lot of people want to get out of the New Orleans area and to what they consider safer places. Yeah, the price of gasoline we were just showing is actually down today. Uh, perhaps a little bit of relief there. Frank, thank you very much. It's good to see you. We appreciate it. Our Frank Holland as the lights go back on in parts of New Orleans. Next hour on Power Lunch, we'll speak to the CEO of the port down there on the fallout they're facing from Hurricane Ida and the impact that closure is having across the country. 
Still ahead, what impact is the Delta variant having on the job market? And what is the C-suite saying about the struggle to find workers? We'll dig into the data. Plus, cyber stocks are coming off an auspicious August. Sentinel One up more than 30%. CyberArk and Palo Alto Networks up more than 15% for their parts as well. Is cyber becoming the new growth trade? We'll explore that after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. There's been a stampede of companies all of a sudden looking for tons of new workers. Let's begin with Fidelity. They're looking to hire up to 9,000 workers by year end. Why? To keep pace with the surge in demand for stock trading. Meantime, Walmart, the country's largest employer, plans to hire 20,000 workers ahead of the holiday season. Dollar General says it's looking to hire even more employees after reaching its previous goal of 50,000 workers before Labor Day. And then there's Amazon. CEO Andy Jassy telling Reuters they plan to hire 55,000 people for corporate and technology roles in the coming months. And to put that number into context, that 55,000 is more than a third of Google's total headcount as of June. It's nearly all of Facebook's 58,000 employees. So why is new data telling us that hiring is slowing in recent weeks? Steve Leisman is here with more on the Delta variant's impact on the labor market. And Christina Partsinevelis has the results of the latest CNBC CFO Council survey on their struggle to find workers. Steve, let's start with you. Yeah, Kelly, thanks. Yeah, the, at least the data is showing. The ADP employment report, along with high-frequency jobs data, all suggesting the Delta outbreak is sapping some of the strength out of the labor market and raising downside risk for the Friday jobs report. ADP coming in at a disappointing 374,000 for the private sector. That compares to an expectation of 600,000 and a forecast for both the private sector and the government of a robust 720,000 coming this Friday. Job gains we're seeing in most sectors, just not enough to meet expectations for another strong report. ADP said its data show Delta has made a dent in job growth and other data backs up this Delta connection. HR software company UKG finding hours work falling 2.4% nationally through mid-August. Growth declined in all regions, but you can see there it fell hardest in the southeast. That's where the Delta variant has been the most widespread. Data from HR software company Homebase, another high-frequency data we follow, shows declines in leisure and entertainment, another potential sign of the Delta variant at work. Spencer Hill, senior economist at Goldman Sachs, tells me, We've learned that the Delta variant is exerting a larger drag on consumer confidence, services consumption, and the labor market than we initially expected. Goldman looking for below consensus 600,000 jobs this Friday. It may be the Fed wants more confidence that it's seen the worst of the economic effects of the virus, Kelly, before announcing that taper. Well, speaking of the taper, uh, so we have Goldman taking down its estimate now for Friday's payroll number. Uh, we have other traders saying that this, you know, if it's a disappointment, could easily push the Fed to delay the taper. You have to wonder, Steve, if markets are sort of saying, well, you know, I, they're sort of loving it either way. Either we're strong enough to warrant a taper or we're weak enough that they're going to push it off and we're kind of back in that risk on environment. I think that's called the, the heads I win, tails you lose flip of the coin. Uh, <laughs> Kelly, I, I think that's right. And, and I think, by the way, if the Fed tapered, it wouldn't be the end of the world for the stock market or earnings growth or GDP either. So I think that there's actually a third way the market can win here. I think it's maybe a little more concerned about 
uh, the taper and or even rate hikes than it should be, because you would think in a normal environment, the Federal Reserve would not have to be buying $120 billion of assets every month or keep interest rates at zero. Right. Steve, we appreciate it. Thank you very much, Steve Leesman, with a recap there. Let's turn to Christina Parts and Evelis with the latest CFO Council survey results that suggest the C-suite's attitudes are changing. Optimism's pretty good, I think, Christina. What's the latest? Uh, I think, right? So employers right now, we know, are bowing down to workers in the hottest job market in decades. Pay hikes, free iPhones, hybrid work schedules, college tuition, anything to get workers on their payroll. But our latest CFO survey shows businesses are still struggling to find those workers. When we conducted this survey back in Q1, 19% of CFOs said it was harder to fill open positions. Now, 69% of those surveyed fall into that category, which is why many of them are coughing up the dough. A majority say that their company is experiencing rising wages, including nearly 90% of U.S. CFOs surveyed. So we know there's a resurgence in infections driven by the Delta variant of the coronavirus, but that could discourage some unemployed people from returning to the labor force. And even though a majority of CFOs say they've reinstated or extended mass mandates in physical office locations, including here at CNBC, especially in the United States, but the situation right now is the post-Labor Day weekend return to the office appears to be falling apart. Some like Google, Ford, Lyft have all pushed back the return to office start date to 2022. And nearly half of all CFOs in our survey also say they've delayed the return to office uh, plans. And one quarter say they've mandated all employees be vaccinated in order to return to the office. The resurgence of COVID-19 cases is casting uncertainty, uncertainty on future plans yet again. And it's making it harder and harder for employers to find workers. And that means the road ahead is going to be a little bit longer and bumpier than originally hoped. I guess the sort of glass half full way to look at this, Christina, is at least they're still trying to hire, right? The, the sort of big scary concern out there would be that suddenly the demand side of the economy slows. And if they're frustrated trying to find workers, at least it suggests their business is still going strong and they're at least looking to add that headcount. Which is a, an interesting point, given so many people, there aren't enough workers. So it shows that a lot of people may be retiring or still opting to not return back, even without the benefits given from the government. The Wall Street Journal wrote a report on that uh, just today, speaking on those states that remove the benefits in July have not seen additional job growth mm -hmm. despite taking them back. So that's an interesting factor to consider as well. Like you mentioned, though, many are hiring. It's still uncertain, though. How do we move forward? Force the vaccines? Do we have to force booster shots? It's, many people don't know what the right move is, and that's right. why we're left with this uncertainty. Yeah, and how it'll all feed into the number we get Friday morning. Christina, thanks very much. Christina Parts and Evelis. And for the full results of the third quarter Global CFO Council survey, you can head over to CNBC.com. Coming up, Kathy Wood went bottom feeding this week, snapping up shares of two tech companies that posted big drops will reveal the names. And the once red-hot NFT market, is it showing signs of uh, life again? We'll have the rebound in digital originals later. And speaking of NFTs, we want to show you shares of Ether, often used in uh, involvement of buying these assets. It's spiking just in the last few minutes. Look at this chart here. Ether up 8% now to around 3,700. It's hitting the highest level since mid-May. A whole lot more on that in just a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a quick check on markets right now, which are still tracking gently to the upside. Dow up five points, S&P up 13, 
A lot more gentle, a lot more than gentle, I should say, for the Nasdaq, which is up three quarters of 1%, 115 points at this hour. Also want to quickly show you shares of Workhouse Group. The stock is hitting session lows after Dow Jones reported the SEC has opened an investigation into this company. Workhorse was an early investor in Lordstown Motors. Workhouse shares are down 2% right now. Kathy Wood's new ETF steers clear of vice stocks. Need to drive ad dollars? Head over to TikTok and Apple's latest attempt to make wallets obsolete. That is all ahead in today's edition of Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. And here's what's happening at this hour. I'm Rahel Solomon. Defense Secretary Austin says that he will always be proud of the role the U.S. played in the war in Afghanistan. He also thanked American service members who fought there. He says that the U.S. is working to shore up allies around Afghanistan and that he will travel to the Persian Gulf next week. And on the news tonight, the transition in Afghanistan from a military to a diplomatic mission. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. President Biden condemning new abortion restrictions in Texas and pledging to protect abortion rights. He says that the law, quote, blatantly violates the constitutional right to abortion established in Roe v. Wade. Just west of New Orleans, dozens of cars are in line for gas. Fuel tracking service Gas Buddy says that about half the gas stations in New Orleans and Baton Rouge are out of gas. And the New Orleans Saints are moving their season opener because of Hurricane Ida. The team has been practicing at the Cowboys Stadium in Dallas. Now the Saints say that they will play their first game of the, site of the season in Jacksonville, taking on the Green Bay Packers. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Now let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines today, our very own Julia Borston, CNBC.com tech editor Steve Kovac, and Gradient Investments portfolio manager Marianne Montaigne making her Rapid Fire debut. So it's great to have everybody here and welcome. First up, Kathy Wood is doubling down on tech innovation and buying on the dip. She snapped up more than 157,000 shares of Zoom for her ARK Innovation ETF and 36,000 for ARK's next gen fund, according to new disclosures. Zoom, remember, was down 16% yesterday on slowing earnings growth, and Q2 was down 12% so far this year. It's up today, by the way. Wood also scooped up 260,000 shares of Robinhood for the ARK FinTech Fund. Hood is down 7% over the past week, up about 2% today. Marianne, is Zoom or Hood in the Marianne Montaigne uh, ETF? No, not at all. First of all, on Zoom, the beats on earnings estimates have become smaller and management's guiding earnings down. So we're not buying on this recent pullback. Uh, You know, at 22 times sales, uh, I'm sorry, 18 times estimated 2022 sales. Too rich for our blood. Right. And it's just people caught what you said there. It's not 18 times earnings. It's 18 times sales. <laughs> That's yes. a very different story. Yes. Steve Kovac, yes. what would you add? Yeah, I mean, we know Kathy Wood loves to buy on the dips, um, but it's also what we're seeing with Zoom is very similar to what we saw with the other big tech companies. It's this hyper pandemic growth makes the comps just look really bad and the shares just get punished. I mean, even Amazon experienced it in this last earnings cycle. Julia? Well, I think this, the question is, this a different type of dip? Is this a dip that's reflecting some real structural challenges for both Zoom and for Robinhood? I mean, if you look at the legal challenge to Robinhood using payment for order flow, if that is indeed restricted or banned, that would have a real fundamental impact on Robinhood's business model. And then for Zoom, not only was this a, a high flyer of the early days of the pandemic, but there are questions about what kind of competition it faces from Microsoft, Google, and others. Oh, sure. And Marianne, let me circle back to you these names aren't attractive to you, what would you be sticking in the portfolio right now? 
Well, we still like Facebook. Um, we think that that double-digit growth in the digital ad market is, uh, is very strong. We're looking for total overall 20% revenue growth and earnings growth about that. Uh, and it's selling at 24 times earnings. So that still <laughs> looks very attractive to us. Well, you're not going to like our TikTok story, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, sticking with Kathy Wood for a moment, ARK Invest is providing its own spin on the ESG investing trend. It's set to debut a new transparency ETF that will include mostly tech, also consumer names like Netflix, Apple, Chipotle, and Tesla, but it excludes booze, banks, candy, gambling, and oil. If approved, it would be ARK's second ETF launch this year following its space and exploration fund. Meanwhile, their flagship innovation ETF is struggling for gains after its 150% jump last year. This one is just interesting to me, Marianne, because it does exclude gambling, which is becoming, you know, gambling is an odd one because it's traditionally thought of as a vice, but sports betting is becoming such a next huge emerging trend. It often gets lumped in the kind of innovation that a fund like Kathy Woods would typically be for. I know that as someone who's interested in some of the ESG stuff yourself, what do you encourage the sort of proliferation of these kinds of investing products? um, Or do you think that they're confusing to investors? Well, first of all, I've made a lot of money in vice, but it all depends on the definition of vice. Uh, And so when I look at ESG, I'm looking for something that's going to make me some green, right, with my green investments. (laughs) And uh, I think that there is a a very big concern around transparency, but coming to the rescue are the big four accounting firms and uh, Bain and McKinsey consultants. So they're coming up with this International Sustainability Standards Board, which is due to release very shortly and give us all some comfort in that area. Um, I don't think we need to completely go to no vice. No vice. It's, uh, Julie, it's interesting to me, it's called a transparency ETF, even though it's an ESG play. So it seems often like transparency and ESG are separate but overlapping issues, but it's all kind of being lumped together here. Well, I think increasingly people are going to want to have transparency about what counts as ESG. And if you yeah. have companies like Netflix, Apple, and Chipotle, which are, are included in, uh, in Kathy Wood's other ETFs, the question is like, why is that necessarily the right thing right now for an ESG angle? But I think that one thing she's very smart about is she is following the money and there's a lot of demand for investment opportunities in ESG plays. You know, I almost want to ask Steve Kovac if he thinks that gambling and sports betting should be a vice stock. But that, that's like an unfair ethical societal <laughs> question to put on you, Steve. <laughs> yes, I can, I'm not one to weigh in on the ethics of gambling. What I am worried about, though, with the proliferation of all these states um, accepting gambling, especially to make up for pandemic losses on the tax base, you've got to wonder if, if these apps are going to get more scrutiny as they get adopted more. We saw with Robinhood, the so-called like gamification of buying sure. stocks, turning it into a kind of a game. What happens when uh, DraftKings and all these other uh, apps get that same kind of scrutiny? Are, they're going to look at every pixel of these apps to make sure they're not encouraging people from betting more than they should. Absolutely. It's like they don't want the gamification of, of, it, of investing, but betting itself is fine. You know, there's some inconsistency there, but like you said, more that will come to find out as more and more people get involved and the regulatory uh, risk may often follow suit. Let's circle back to what we were just saying about Facebook and TikTok. Facebook has the upper hand in this fight for digital ad dollars lately. A new study shows TikTok users are the most receptive to ads as of any platform, including Google, including Amazon, including Facebook. It's leading the pack now for the second year in a row. And Rosenblatt Securities just downgraded Facebook today to neutral for this reason, calling 2022 an unavoidable inflection point 
as ad revenue slows amid rising competition. Julia, I'm not sure if personal experience, let's say household experience, confirms that people are, I think people don't like the ads on TikTok is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Maybe it's just us. Well, that's, well, Katie, I would say that's not what the data says, um, Kelly. I think if you look at the data, this really interesting data from Kantar, what they found was that there are different places where people are more or less receptive to ads. And the place where people were most receptive to ads was TikTok. And that's actually true for the second year in a row. That's followed by Amazon, which sort of makes sense because people are already looking for products. And this idea of ad receptivity is a really important piece here. Instagram was in third place, Google fourth place, and then Twitter in fifth place. But interesting that Facebook, of course, did not show up in the top five. Facebook, which has been doing great throughout the pandemic in terms of growing its ad pricing, the question really is going forward whether its users are less receptive to ads, especially considering the headwinds that it faces from Apple changing its ad targeting rules. Does it, Marianne, you mentioned earlier why you think Facebook is an attractive stock its multiple is pretty good. You like its ad growth. So does this make you nervous as an investor? It doesn't because Facebook, together with Google, really dominate that digital ad space. And the others that we're talking about are very, very small shares of the marketplace. So we think they'll continue to dominate. And if you don't like the ad, you just scroll up. (laughs) But you know it's at the margin, right? So if you've got ad dollars going to Amazon, Marianne, and TikTok, And to some extent, even Apple, we had a segment the other day about how Apple wants to uh, potentially grow its advertising. Doesn't that at the margin sort of chip away at Facebook's growth, potentially preventing a a risk to the stock? Possible, but very small risk to me. And things are changing at Facebook all the time to improve. So I'm not going to be concerned about that. Yeah, improve, catch up, copycat even. They've proven pretty good (laughs) pivoting as they need to be. And finally today... Apple's grip on our lives is growing a little bit tighter. More than half a dozen states have signed off on allowing driver's licenses and state IDs to populate inside the Apple wallet. Arizona and Georgia are first. Six others will follow in the Wall Street Journal. is separately reporting that Apple is planning more health features for its Apple Watch, including a blood pressure tool and a thermometer. Uh, we'll get into that story, Steve, in just a moment. I'm very excited about having my license in my Apple wallet. Why should I temper my enthusiasm? Oh, I think you might have seen me say this on Twitter earlier uh-huh. today. I'm less excited than you are. I'm fine with flashing my phone to a TSA agent right now to show them my ID, which is all this can do, by the way. If a cop pulls you over and you have this ID um, on your phone, they're not going to be able to accept it. But yes, handing my phone over to someone, even if it's at the supermarket, if they need to check my ID against you know, my credit card or something like that, there's just something weird and personal about having my phone handed over to a complete stranger, let alone law enforcement. But, and then on the Apple Watch thing, this is, this is really interesting too. Oh, go ahead. Well, okay, so hold that thought for a second because it seems to me like yeah. there's no way Apple wants us to hand our phones to anybody, right? With the facial ID and all the other privacy features built in, won't it be the case that they, much like when you're at the grocery store now, if I want them to scan my, you know, whatever, they, I just hold the phone up and they, they put the scanner through the glass. I mean, why would I have to hand it to anybody here? My point is, right now, the only reason I carry my actual wallet around is typically for the driver's ID and maybe for my employee badge. I can't wait to do away with those and just carry just the phone around. 
Yeah, and it seems very useful. And keep in mind, it's not just the ID they're doing. They're adding car keys to the Apple Wallet as well with this new software update coming in the fall. So you'll be able to you'll, you'll leave your car keys at home. Pretty soon, the only thing you need to be able to carry around is just the iPhone. But there's and no, that's exactly what Apple wants but you that's, to do. There's no way they're going to let you hand it to someone. If I handed my thing, phone, you could go drive my car and, you know, you know mm-hmm. that, they would never, <laughs> they've got to come up with a way around. No, well, well, for that, well, they have that. You can share the key digitally with someone in, the, in that case. You don't literally have to hand it your Phone, very, yes. very interesting. All right, Marianne, let's get you in here. What are your thoughts about these, both of these initiatives by Apple today? Yeah, I think it's part of an overall refresh cycle, including that iPhone 13 that's coming very shortly. And these other features on the watch are just awesome. Uh, you're going to have to carry your phone plus a recharger because if you can't charge it when you need those things, uh, you're sunk. Yeah. But uh, just looking at the promotions that we're seeing from the carriers, that's going to drive demand. Uh, and uh, we think the stock's not cheap at 24 times forward earnings, but uh, this is a very high quality name with some very good growth drivers, uh, despite tough comps after the pull forward in demand we had due to COVID. Yeah. So we continue to like it. A slower year for them. You like it, Julia. Quick last word. I'm excited to have everything in one place on my phone, but they will have to extend the battery life so you don't have to worry about losing access to your driver's license or your keys because you haven't plugged in for long enough. Yeah, I know someone who key, whose keys died the other day, actually. We had to give them a ride home. All right, Julia Borston, Steve Kovac, Marianne Montaigne, thank you all for this edition of Rapid Fire Societal Transformation. Up next, shares of CrowdStrike are falling despite an earnings beat after August's huge run-up in cyber stocks. Is this the canary in the coal mine for cyber? We will explore that next, right after a break. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of CrowdStrike are falling about 3% today, despite an earnings beat and strong guidance. And despite this decline, its shares are still higher, 8% or so over the past month. August was great for the cyberspace overall. Zscaler, Fortinet, Palo Alto Networks also climbing 13 to 17%. And my next guest says stick with this space. Maintaining CrowdStrike is a top cyber pick in a note yesterday. Joining me now is Brent Phil. He's an analyst at Jefferies. Brent, it's good to have you. What was the, the catalyst here? I mean, there's obviously been a lot of hacking headlines, but we've had that for years. Hey, Kelly. I think uh, the ongoing digital disruption, uh, look, we're in a work from anywhere environment. And if you look at our firm, you know, we sent 4,000 people from multiple offices to 4,000 homes and CrowdStrike is helping protect our organization. Many other companies are doing this. Uh, and so this environment where devices are magnifying, uh, you're seeing uh, more assets move digital uh, and the, the number of hacks is up. You're seeing an incredible need to protect yourself uh, in these companies. And so what we're seeing is a, a layered defense mechanism. There's not one vendor in cyber that's going to be the end-all, be-all. There are going to be multiple vendors. So CrowdStrike in the endpoint, Veronis on the inside. Uh, you look at a company like Cloudflare, the ticker's net. Uh, they help protect uh, the cloud and improve the reliability and speed of the network. Uh, another company we really like in the space. So I think there's a, a cyber basket that investors need to own. And if you look at the cyber basket uh, of some of the names we like, uh, obviously, you know, we didn't know this, but the, the group's up close to 40% year to date. Yeah. So well, ultimately, we think that the tailwinds are still there. And uh, in- increasingly, as we go digital, that, that that's going to be a, a need of protection uh, as we make that move. So if these are the new soldiers, if you will, in the work from home era, who was formerly guarding things 
at the work site. You know, who is losing share at the expense of these winners? If you look at CrowdStrike, you know, their main uh, replacement today is Symantec and McAfee. Uh, those are getting replaced at an alarmingly high rate. Uh, and so they have been the losers. There's been two winners uh, with CrowdStrike and Sentinel One, both on the endpoints uh, on the up and come. Uh, you've seen, you know, on the network, Palo Alto networks do very well. Uh, we think, you know, other vendors like Cisco and Juniper have lost share. Uh, even checkpoint to some degree against Palo Alto. So in each of these sub areas, you're seeing winners and uh, and losers, and ultimately, you know, there are multiple subcategories of cyber. And this is again why we're advocating. There is no Microsoft or Google of of cyber. There are, uh, you know, a layer defense model that has to happen. And so we recommend owning the best uh, in each of those layers. Yeah. To help, uh, to help uh, investors. And you've mentioned several of the names already, so I imagine that's kind of where you would tell people to go. What are the big risks here? It feels like often in the past we would talk about cyber stocks not working despite positive headlines and that kind of thing. And there seemed to be a general sense of it wasn't clear that they were demonstrating results. Has that have we seen a shift in that era to proven re- uh, reliability? I, I think so. And I think part of this has, again, been driven by the pandemic and in, in, in kind of this globally diverse workforce that we have. Uh, and then you're seeing, right, we're, we're not, you know, entrusting the local bank or we're, we're putting our assets in Bitcoin and other digital currencies. And so I, I think ultimately what's happened is the shift to digital has is, is created this, this need and uh, the, the threat actors have gotten worse. The ransomware attacks are up massively. And, and so I think that, that all makes sense. These companies are, are producing great growth with margins. If you look at CrowdStrike, for example, 70% growth, you know, in an increasing margin structure, uh, you know, they're doing it with, with, you know, a good bottom line as well as they can continue to grow. So I, I think that it's changed. Um, again, uh, the biggest risk for the group is just valuation. A lot of these stocks have worked. Uh, you've had big moves yeah. uh, and you continue to see more and more IPOs coming to the market. And there's a backlog of a, a number of names in cyber that, that continue to, to access the public markets. That's a great explainer how it's really a work-from-home uh, trend more than anything else. Brett, thanks for joining today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Brent Phil of Jeffries. Speaking of which, NFTs are back. After a steep drop in sales since the spring surge, they were back above the billion-dollar mark in August. We'll tell you what's driving the rebound next. And remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following The Exchange Podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. After exploding in popularity this spring, the NFT market cooled off a bit through early summer, but the markets for digital assets are once again seeing a major resurgence. The NFT trading platform OpenSea hit almost $2 billion in sales last month, compared with about $150 million in March and only $8 million in January. The bounce back in crypto prices plays into the move as NFTs are often bought and sold using Ether which is up around 35% this month, spiked here uh, just in the trading session today and is back to its highest levels since mid-May. Now, with the surge comes security concerns. Last night, it was revealed a prominent collector paid nearly $300,000 for a Fank Banksy NFT. I think it was returned or something like that. Anyway, joining me now is Roger Dickerman, the CEO of NFT trading platform Artifacts. Roger, it's great to see you. Uh, every time I turn around, there's another headline about NFTs. What's going on here? Kelly, thanks for having me. Isn't it so fun when I was last on in June, we were pulling back from the high of the Beeple sale. Yeah. And now we are here and we have a $3 billion month on our hands. 
It's a huge number, but put that into context for me. Like we said, we had $3 million months or weeks to start the year off. We have reports that Visa is getting into, you know, they're buying some assets in the space or what have you, that, you know, people joke all the time about why are people buying kind of like the dumbest clip art but paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. What's the real value in the NFT space? Where are these just kind of memes are piling on? And why do people view this as a place to store wealth? Yeah, so let's look back. Art drove the first surge when I was last on, right? This surge was driven by collectibles largely. But what's the meat to collectibles? What's the value there? Well, it's digital identity. I think people are realizing that digital identity is and will be quite valuable uh, from avatars to stepping into immersive VR experiences. Uh, people realize they have to have a piece of it. And you're talking about the metaverse and the kind of this idea that as we enter these digital arenas, there's an opportunity for a land grab now that can give you some valuable assets in that world of the future. What would you say to those who go, I, I don't I don't want to get involved. This sounds crazy. You know, how would you distinguish NFTs from having genuine staying power versus just being a passing fad? Well, first, I would say I understand it's new. It's a nascent concept. Right. But here's a good analogy. Let's look at the physical world, that Rolex that you might wear on your wrist. Why do you value that? right? It's worth something to identity, to status. It's the same thing in digital. As we step into, again, these experiences that I don't know that we can dispute are going to be part of our future. We see it in the movies and we see it beyond and now we see it in reality. People want those Rolexes or those pictures or those shirts or those backpacks in those worlds, just like they do, they do the quote unquote real world. Sure. So final advice, I, I guess I, I would say from your point of view as the expert, you said art was the first. Then we have collectibles. What, what's the next phase of this market? How big could it get? Who are the players now? What should we be watching? Let's watch now the rush of the athletes, the celebrities, the influencers. This market is new, but it's established enough that people see it. People see the relevance. So look at Mike Tyson coming in and pairing with digital artist Corey Van Lu. Look at Autograph.io, the, you know, the Tom Brady company pairing with Simone Biles uh, just this week, actually, yesterday and tomorrow to bring Simone into the space, pairing it also with access to Simone Biles, which is another really interesting concept. But look for all of those big household names now finding a way to come into the space. All right. Roger, thanks for joining me again. Quite a turnaround from the last time we spoke. We appreciate it. Roger Dickerman today. A key component of President Biden's tax plan that once had support across the Democratic Party is facing some resistance now. We have all those details next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The tax reform that should have been a layup for the Biden administration is now dealing with pushback led by a former Democratic senator. Robert Frank joins us with that story. Robert. Well, Kelly, Biden's plan to tax unrealized gains at death now facing attacks from small business. And as you mentioned, Democrats, Biden has proposed getting rid of what's called the step up in basis and imposing a capital gains tax on appreciated assets upon death for those who make more than a million dollars a year. The coalition of farmers, small businesses and other lobbying groups say it would force families to sell just to pay the tax. And that tax could be over 40 percent. Leading the charge and a new ad campaign is former Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp. She says taxpayers should not pay any capital gains tax unless and until an asset is actually sold. I'm trying to sound the alarm, both economically and politically for Democrats, that this is not a path to walk. 
which is taxing unrealized gain. The disruption that this would create for small family businesses and for farmers and for uh, family assets is just not worth the pain. Now, Biden's plan does exempt family farms and businesses that continue to be owned by those families. It also allows 15 years for families to pay those taxes on businesses not exempt or being sold. The White House saying only the richest three-tenths of one percent of taxpayers would actually pay the tax. But, Kelly, that number two now under dispute. Back to you. So let's take the example, Robert, of a dry cleaning business uh, started by parents who pass away. Would that likely be taxed under this proposal? Absolutely. If that dry cleaning business was valued, depending on whether it's a single person or a couple, there are exemptions here that it has to be worth more than $2 million or maybe even 2.5 to even be subject to the tax. Let's assume that dry clean business or chain of dry cleaners is worth more than $2 million. Yes, that family would immediately pay a tax on the value over $2 million as soon as they inherit it, even if they don't plan to sell it. Again, I think that's why you have Senator Heitkamp saying this could be politically damaging, right? Yeah, it's a form of a wealth tax, really, because tax on unrealized gains is a form of wealth tax. And let's say you're talking about stocks, which go up and down a lot every year. You would you would pay a tax, let's say, on a, on a high basis when they inherit it. Let's say it goes down. I mean, there are all kinds of issues that are similar to wealth tax here yeah. that people say, look, fine to get rid of step up in basis, but let's not tax an unrealized gain right. until it's actually sold. And there is a gain. Yeah. Robert, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it very much today. Robert Frank, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.